looking glass for. We are maintaining Protestant resistance to Roman religion and global empire, keeping the light of historical truth alive, and preparing for the conflict that surely will come with the Chinese Communist Party. Long live America. You're back here. We're at the Rebel Base. We're here at the Command Center, and here we're um, broadcasting our pirate signal with Looking Glass Forum. And we're really just going to continue on with the progression of our episodes here. We intend to bring to light as much information as we possibly can, and we have to work in the kind of common current news events that are hitting and, and changing the world around us as we move forward through history. And really, the the, the mainstream propaganda networks who work for the, the party of Davos, who really are interested in, in controlling the direction of the Federal Reserve and really the future of markets and decentralizing power there in Europe, is really working and supporting the, the Chinese Communist Party. And they have worked for some time, and the corruption that they have wrought has come to fruition within the both the Republicans and the Democrat Party. So you can see that Washington, D.C. is what it always was going to become and uh, with the the central bank and with the the control of the military it is just an apparatus you know controlling the the dominions and the estates of the the money powers and the the political elite and the the aristocracy there in Europe so we see that we really can't get around that ultimately we are finding that we ourselves are the now the occupying force of the world the hessian soldiers if you will that are being used to control Afghanistan and other countries where the, the massive growth of uh, poppy and heroin trafficking used to be controlled by the Taliban has now been controlled by the State Department and the Department of Defense uh, control these these regions. And ultimately, you can see that uh, the, the the consideration of Russia and their ability to continue to exist um, and their really their economic relationship and ties to to Europe are getting stronger, especially with the pipeline, the gas lines, that, you know, the, the fuel that you know, Putin is selling to Europe. And you have to understand the connections there are tenuous with the Chinese military and the Chinese Communist Party, but they are aligned against the West. And we in America like to have our July 4th, our patriotic sentiments, and our, our thoughts on George Washington. But ultimately, the, the elite globalist apparatus have begun to, and have for a long time, controlled and I really established, as we said, the power centers there in Washington, D.C., in London, and ultimately in Rome. And those power centers are not going to be easily removed. And so you can see that these creatures like Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and the Clintons, these contorted, child-molesting, pedophile, greed uh, freaks with the um, their avarice being absolutely out of control with no end. I mean, look at the Biden group. They're just, I mean, Hunter Biden being the, the pride of the future Biden family. I mean, like this idiot is just a crackhead who is basically a puppet and an agent for the Chinese spy networks. And they're bought and sold and paid for with money that I'm sure that they got through the, Cl the Clintons. Remember, the Clintons were selling them uh, technology and you know, technology back in the 90s. So they're in into China. And those relationships allowed for the Chinese to become a peer competitor in the military and naval and then in space also. So we have a lot of problems with the, the elite. We have a lot of problems with our the power pig families that, that run Washington, D.C. And we're going to continue to see. We have to look at Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband. We have to look at uh, Joe Biden's brother, 
this fake president and his brother and, and all the uh, dealings there that they're making, the billions that they're making through contracts, you know, the, the, the double dealing, it's just staggering what's happening there. Um, so we here in free Florida have to take into consideration that, you know, we have to think about what's best for Florida guys, everybody in the United States. Um, you need to think about what is going on with your own government because Washington DC is polluted swamp monsters and they can no longer uh, do anything but try to suck the life out of us like the parasite that they always were. You have to remember that the book was The Creature from Jekyll Island, which talked about the corruption of the Federal Reserve System and the banking dynasties from Europe that established the, the John Pierre Palm Morgans and the, and the Rockefellers and established, you know, it, it, a lot of this money coming through Warburg families and these other families that were used to front the, the capital in order to set up this banking cartel. So, but something I want to remind you of again, uh, we're going to listen to a couple of different clips here, and I want to just kind of get back on track to our original thesis, uh, despite the fact that we have to find a way to, you know, legally, politically, nonviolently, resi- you know, resist and overthrow our corrupt government in the Washington, D.C., either by just pulling back the grant of power that establishes the federal government, or by electing new leaders, or by maybe just taking down that capital and putting up the capital back in Philadelphia, you know, maybe having a constitutional convention to open up um, a way to, you know, take away the power that the, the European elite are wielding through Washington, D.C. as a separate district. Maybe we don't need a, a capital, an imperial capital that rains down on us from a, a special district raises up a de facto military government and casts down and, and replaces and supplants our old constitutional de jure enum- enumerated powers, a limited grant of power that we established, uh, all the other rights and powers and plenary authority that we established were reserved for the states. The states have all the authority and what little power we established for the capital, for the federal government was was to be limited and they were to have, and so they've become this overgrown, gargantuan deep state of really, in, in ultimately the, the apparatchiks there have begun to, starting with John Boehner uh, when they you know ushered in Pope Francis to kind of Everyone applaud for you know, the Pope, and as he comes in and kisses the ground and kind of takes command. I mean, there's a little, we have to recognize how many Roman Catholics there are in the Supreme Court, how many Roman Catholics there are, and they're you know there to establish the vote and the democracy of the United States in, in subordination to their archdiocese and subordination to their Jesuit priests and and the papacy, as that's their religion. So ultimately, we have to recognize that the Protestant. And and Baptist and Lutheran traditions that were set up here to separate church and state are going to ultimately come to an end in this kind of tyrannical and asymmetrical political warfare that we're seeing taking place in Washington, D.C. You really have uh, Catholics on both sides that are going to come out on both sides of the political spectrum. And this really is the actual definition and nature of the Hegelian dialectic when you have a singular political polemic that really assiduously operates behind both partisan dynamics. So that represents a third political dynamic vying between this two-party system. And ultimately, that systemology, that, that program of 
imperial statism that ultimately kind of marks the entire period of the Dark Ages and the medieval period of European history, even if you want to go back and look at the feudalism of samurai, Japanese culture, the the truth is, is that there was ultimately one final monarch and one overlord that was the, the lord who determined the fate of everyone in the culture and everyone in the society. So this kind of autocracy and dictatorship represents a monarchical power that the lords of Spain and Portugal and uh, France and Italy and England for many centuries wielded this kind of medieval feudal lord mastery over their different dominions. And the establishment of this declaration of independence and this call for, for men to be free and for free men to establish self-government and liberty for all and a system of laws and justice for all. I mean, these ideas came from ultimately the Magna Carta and they were the ideas that were established through time. And um, we need to basically build a really interesting and kind of complete picture of history here as we're going forward. So I'm going to introduce some different clips. And it's hard to get all this done in one shot. So we're going to just work with what we have here. And it will be excellent to start off with the Eric Metaxas show as he just just talking with Oz Guinness about his new book, The Rise and Possible Fall of the West. So I thought we got to give it a listen. Back up a bit. In a Europe in the holy burly of the press and the media, I'm living in Washington. Many people are just putting out fires. They see a scandal, a crisis, a outrage, or whatever it is, and they respond to that. And daily, it's sort of firefighting. And so people miss the wood looking only at the trees. And you have to have history. You know, St. Augustine said, to understand a nation, you look at what it loves supremely. And for me, there's no question that America's supreme love, which means you can use it to understand where America is at any moment, is freedom. And freedom comes through the Reformation and the rediscovery of printing and so on from the Hebrew Scriptures. And you know, in the universities today, they tell us, I'm sure you were told at Yale, that freedom and toleration came from the Continental Enlightenment. Rubbish. You know, scholars like Eric Nelson at Harvard or Michael Walzer at Princeton point out the 17th century was called the biblical century. And they were fascinated, even Thomas Hobbes, an atheist, with the so-called Hebrew Republic. Because you have the arrival of covenantalism, which became constitutionalism. And Americans need to understand where their revolution came from. Because the tragedy today is we're switching from the American Revolution to the heirs of the French Revolution. And that switch is disastrous. Well, it's hard not to be angry uh, when, when I think of, you know, the money that people are spending at places like Yale and not only getting something that's subpar, getting a version of history that is, in fact, genuinely erroneous. It is absolutely untrue. Uh, but this is what they're peddling. This is what they're teaching the leaders of the nation and the culture have taken this in and it's it falls to us to try to undo some of this damage but it's uh, the stakes are very high oh absolutely but when you say it's erroneous you're right but it's not as if someone's made a, an accidental error or left out something by mistake no it is quite intentional and deliberate it's the result of the so-called long march and in my book, I analyze from Antonio Gramsci in the 20s, the Frankfurt School, 
Herbert Marcuse, and then the end of the 60s, the call for the Long March. And as you know, they knew they couldn't win in the streets. You know, I think I told you before, I first came here in 68, six weeks. I met Mario Savio, who led the free speech movement at Berkeley. Listened to uh, Ray Slick and the Jefferson Airplane and concerts at the Fillmore West and so on. But with all the radicalism of that year, far more than last year, you know, Martin Luther King, assassinated. Bobby Kennedy, assassinated. A hundred cities ablaze. But they knew they couldn't win in the streets, so they called for the long march through the institutions. Who coined that term? Well, it's Marcuse and Rudi Deutschke in the Red Brigade in Germany. Uh -huh. Going back, of course, to Mao Zedong's long march in China, but doing it culturally here. In other words, you have to win the colleges and universities, the press and the media, and the world of what they call then the culture industry, Hollywood and entertainment. Sweep around, you win the whole culture. So we think of things like, well, this year, critical race studies has come up, or earlier the cancel uh, culture and so on. But they are all the fruit of the long march and the triumph of cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism. And people need to understand it. Because while people are facing individual this, that, and the other, schools and so on, no national leader setting out how this has happened and what it means. And that's what I'm calling for. And you know, I'm a foreign admirer of this country. I love it. Your, your thesis is that uh, the covenantal idea that we get from the Old Testament of a covenant with God uh, being the basis of America, most people are entirely ignorant of that, and I am mostly ignorant of that. So tell us, where did this start? Was it 1620? When did this idea begin? Well, Larry, before we do that, can I just say why it's some ways easier as a foreign observer to see things. You know, Kipling used to say, what knows he of England who only England knows? And many Americans know America so well they simply don't know it. So you come from the outside and you see things by force of contrast very vividly. And this book, again, let me go a little wider. This book I begin when I was seven years old, January 1949. My dad said to me, son, we're in trouble. Chiang Kai-shek has just abandoned the city. We were living in China's capital, and we're at the mercy of the Red Army. So I saw two years under the reign of terror. My own dad denounced, tried. Fortunately, they couldn't find enough evidence. But many people tried, executed by the thousands all around us. So I remember that. But that was important because many years later, I was at Oxford, and I had dinner with Sir Isaiah Berlin at All Souls College, and we discovered that he'd been a seven-year-old in the Russian Revolution in St. Petersburg, as I'd been a seven-year-old in the Chinese Revolution. And as we compared notes, we were glad that the English-speaking world stood so firmly against communism. But it was unthinkable then, this was the 1970s, that America would fall for anything to do with Marxism in any way. So it's staggering today to see how cultural Marxism has overcome so much. Do you want me to come to your question? 
No question. Well, I oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. When the church was declared the official religion of the Roman Empire, it copied, for better or worse, Roman structures. And they were hierarchical. The Caesar, the consuls, the senators, and so on. And the church had a pope and cardinals and bishops and so on. But you know, it was Lord Acton, a Catholic layman, who made the famous remark that all power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. In other words, hierarchical governments corrupt themselves. When the Reformation came, not at first through Luther, but through Calvin and then Zwingli and then Bullinger, and in Scotland, John Knox, and in England, Oliver Cromwell, they went back not to Roman structures, but to the Bible. And in Exodus, the genius politically is covenant. And so that came into the thinking and into the politics. Cromwell says it's the direct parallel to what they were trying to do in the English Revolution. It failed. In England, it's called the lost cause. But what was the lost cause in England became the winning cause in New England. So it came across Mayfair Contact is a covenant. John Winthrop on the Arbella spoke of a covenant. When John Adams wrote the first constitution of Massachusetts, he called it a covenant. Now, what was it about the Old Testament covenant? Well, you had three features which put their stamp. First, freely chosen consent. Three times it says in Exodus, all of the Lord says, we will do. Michael Walzer calls that the almost democracy. Freely chosen consent. That's where the consent of the government comes from. So we have to go and we have to rely on Oskinis and the work of Eric Metaxas to kind of get this point laid out here. But we have to recognize that in the show we're going to be able to you know work with you to understand how the European Union represents the old system, the old world order, Roman structures. These hierarchical Roman structures that have been the archetype controlling history for so long have to recognize that even the, the Caesars of Rome couldn't control or wield power over Rome without the consent of the, the Senate. And so that's what you see today there in, in Rome, in the Vatican, is the system of imperialism still in place. And so you have the College of Cardinals, Cardia, which is the the, um, the pontiffs, and that's the old Senate. And they choose from amongst themselves the ruler, the, the one who will wield the power of Julius Caesar, the imperial power of the imperator, the emperor of Rome. And that's what the Pontifex Maximus is. And so ultimately, in this episode, we need to talk more about how we arrive at the intriguing personage of Albert Pike, and this is going to be the second episode, and we need to really just build a lot of the backstory and try to establish some of the historical facts, and that's what we're going to do. So we're going to keep using different articles, different points of research, different authors and researchers, and uh, we're going to get right into it. I have another offering I want to put into place here, and let's take a listen to this. I have historian Patrick K. O'Donnell, and he's going to discuss this whole topic four or five years of his life on the American Revolution. Our greatest combat historian has spent the last couple of years on the American Revolution, telling the stories of the men and women of that revolution down in a micro, in a, in a, in a, down the deck plates. So Patrick, walk us through, talk, how did, what was the road to the revolution? What was the road to the declaration? How, how did this all come about? 
It was about government interference, Steve, and the, inter the interference in the lives of the colonists. And let me just take you to a scene, uh, the opening scene of my book, The Indispensables. And this is emblematic of, of that interference. It's also one of the first documented cases of resistance, armed resistance. And the, um, the pit packet is a ship that's returning from Spain with a load of salt back to Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is the origin of my story. And they're boarded by the HMS Rose, and this isn't a friendly boarding. They're there to impress the men of the pit packet. An impressment in the 18th century is basically slavery. You are going to be a member of the Royal Navy, whether or not you like it or not. And you'll be, it's a life of service, and you're paid a pittance. Most men uh, die at sea, and their bodies are tossed overboard like a bag of garbage. So these men knew what, was, what it was in for them. They decide to fight back. And um, in the middle of a scuffle, one of the bags of salt breaks aboard the, the deck of the pit packet, and the, the Royal Navy tries to uh, wrestle down several of the marbleheaders. And Michael Kerbin, um says, uh, basically, he, he draws a line in the sand, or the line, line of the salt, and says, if you cross it, um, and he says something quite dramatic. You are determined to deprive me of my liberty, and I am determined to defend it. You have no right to be here. We you retreat as far as we can. We will go no further. If you step over the line, you're a dead man. And the British officer stepped over that line, and he had a harpoon to the jugular vein. He started to bleed out right then and there. These men were then um, tried for murder, and it was America's first super lawyer, John Adams, that exonerates Michael Corbett, but this Irishman is, is the first act of resistance. But the Crown is continuing to level further um, taxes, as well as impose their will on the colonists. And, you know, a number of atrocities take place. We have the Boston Massacre, where American, a number of Americans are killed, including an African-American Christmas addict. And then these things continue to escalate. And it's the lives of the Marbleheaders that are they're being controlled, you know, 3,000 miles away by the crown, where they don't have any representation. There's more taxes. There's more, uh, their liberty is further uh, declines. But in the midst of all of this, a virus hits the colonies. It begins in, in Marblehead, Massachusetts. It's quite interesting, Steve. This virus is smallpox. Colonists try to contain it. Marbleheaders try to contain it. But it divides the town politically. Between patriots and loyalists, and the virus is actually weaponized in 1774, and this causes a number of rifts. The men in the book have their homes surrounded after a inoculation. Oh, 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 hang on here for a second. What do you mean it was weaponized, and what do you mean between patriots and loyalists? What smallpox was 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 a, was, a, was, a, was, a, was was a terrible thing when it hit these uh, hit these villages in Europe. So what happened? What happened with the smallpox? What happened with the smallpox is the patriots try to, to, to come up with a novel way of combating it. First, they try to uh, they try to exclude people that have it in so-called pest houses. That doesn't work. But then they come up with this plan of an inoculation hospital. They inoculate people. This is uh, this is before Jenner. The, the science isn't known. It's dangerous, uh, but you basically put a small portion of the, the virus in the body and create the antibodies. It, it works most of the time. Sometimes it doesn't. But the loyalists in town see the inoculation hospital. They, they burn it to the ground, 
with people inside it. Um, and miraculously, nobody dies. But they use the virus as a wedge issue to, to gain power. And uh, after they burn it to the ground, the patriots want to recover their money. They, uh, they have the local sheriff round up the perpetrators, which they do. Perpetrators are put in, in the local jail. But the loyalists organize over a thousand people into a massive mob. They break into the jail with axes and crowbars. They free the men. And then they surround the homes of the main characters in my book. Uh, John Glover, who's a main, uh, one of the principal characters that moves through the American Revolution, has a decisive role in the Marblehead Regiment, has a novel way of combating it. He takes a four-pound gun and wheels it into the foyer of his home, waits for the crowd to assemble on his front lawn, has the door thrust open, and it's a get-off-your-lawn moment. He has a torch in his hand and says to disperse. People do, but this is a classic case oh, of uh, that, that, self-defense that's Ameri- and resilience. That, hold, hold, hold it. That's American Patriot right there. He's got the cannon in the hallway and the torch with the get-off-my-lawn. That's the, that's the just, grit and determination made this Trust me. <laughs> Indeed. And he, and he survives the American Revolution, and he's, he's there during all the inflection points. But that's an example of his resilience. Elbridge Gary also has his home surrounded. Initially, this has an effect where some of the patriots kind of go a little bit underground. But what happens next is the uh, Boston Tea Party. And that's where the crown really throws down. But, 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 but hang on, before I hold it, before, hang on. Before we get to the Tea Party, I want to take. I'm going to connect two dots. One was the impressment of, of the of the American of the of, of the uh, guy at the very beginning, and then it's about the loyalist. The this shows you that Britain said, "Hey, you're Englishmen. If we need you for the navy, we're going to take you for the navy, just like we impress people in Plymouth or impress people in in the towns of, of England, where they would just go through with press gangs and pick you up. You're an Englishman. You're living here. You have no separate rights." Brown really throws down after the, the Boston Tea Party. They close the port. The the Marblehead men have something called the Fisheries Act, where their livelihood of the Grand Banks is is removed. They're all thrown out of work. They're economically. Um, the, the, the crowd is basically going after everybody economically. They take the judges that are there, and then they install only crown judges. The, the Massachusetts government is dissolved, and then they go after the powder. The um, the English know that we have plenty of guns, but there's no powder in the colonies. There's no there's no organic manufacture of it. So then they start to seize all the powder supplies, and this is where you have something called the Somerville Powder Raid where General Gage in September goes after a, a cache of powder outside of Boston. And what happens is the, the political revolution that is, that, is, that is going on in the colonies that begins in 1765 with the Stamp Act is then thrust into an arms race and the a, a military revolution um, is, is at the beginning stages. And all of the Gage's operations are about disarmament uh, he's trying to go after the powder supplies, and th- you've got something called the Salem Gunpowder uh, Alarm. You've got Fort William and Mary, where the colonists actually raid a fort. There's shots fired in December 1774. One man is wounded. It's really a dramatic scene, um, and it's all leading towards Lexington and Concord. So we'll just put a pause on it right there. It's a fascinating discussion, and he goes on and discusses more. We'll add the link so you can uh, take a listen to the entire interview. It's, it's just really, really 
edifying. It's interesting to hear the history and really just trying to uh, take his points and add them to our the case that we're making here. And we're pointing out that the really many things change, but many things really stay the same. And so as we're going forward here, as we're dealing with the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, and we're dealing with the, the effort of the elite to try to establish a, a one world governing apparatus and to have all these different uh, political unions, the African Union and the, uh, the European Union, it seems to have the preeminence of place. And so uh, as we recognize that they're taking a, a, a cyber hegemony, they're, they're moving forward with, with their, their aristocracy and a, a technocratic age, so everything is being ruled from The Hague, and so you have the International Criminal Court, and you had Bush say that he wouldn't ratify it, and then you had Clinton say that they would ratify it, and then, then Obama say they would ratify it, and then Trump said that he would not ratify it, and so we're trying to, try to maintain our independence here in the United States, our sovereign political autonomy from this juggernaut and from this power vacuum, this power elite that seem to take it upon themselves to rule us and to to really impress us into their way of doing business. We have to have a vaccine passport. We have to have a passport. We have to pass a port. You have to enter in the port. You have to have a system of universal laws that runs the ports. Everyone has to get a stamp. Everyone has to be photographed. Biometric data. Everyone has to get a stamp. Everyone has to get a, you know, a vaccine. Everyone must be under the control of these regulations. And these regulations are the rules that are written by as we said before, we're getting into the nitty gritty now as far as the universal, uniform commercial code, the UCC. And that's something that's in the background, kind of governing over the uh, underwriters laboratory, the UL listings, all the different regulations that are required in the establishment, the electronic grid, the cyber grid of borders that interconnects the globe, every different country to every other country is becoming part of this the system of, of doorways and ports, if you will, and points, points of entry, different guard houses that control the gates, uh, check IDs, look at paperwork, allow people to pass, allow people not to pass, check your vaccine passport, make sure you have a vaccine, make sure you have a mask on. These systems of authority and control are becoming interlinked and overlapped. They're becoming uniform. So as we're moving forward, just the federal government is moving forward in lightning speed with a new federal police force. So you'll have your town, you have the sheriff, you have the police force, you'll have your state police, you'll have federal investigators, and now you have a new federal police force that'll come and maybe regulate your home or maybe tell you when you need to get a vaccine. So as we're getting going here, we need to look at what is the nature of tyranny? What is slavery? What is sovereignty and freedom? And how do we maintain and protect it? How do we make sure that the presupposition of our idealism of freedom is actually a reality when we walk out our door rather than uh, just a fantasy that we pretend like we wave little American flags that are polyester that were made in China. And we have huge uh, Federal Reserve debt that was established by private bankers from the city of London. And we pretend like we have liberty and freedom, but we're really debtors who uh, apparently are working hard to to tank our own military and to which is becoming more and more debased with critical race theory and the partisan politics that is just becoming rather than a strengthening a process of strengthening our culture and allowing our populace to speak through our representatives with a popular government far from having a democracy of free self-government really have this dictatorship of the media and the elite in this country. I want to take a, uh, take us to another, another perspective here. We have Tom Luongo here, 
from a podcast called Goats and Guns, fascinating podcast. His perspective is really intriguing, so we have to take a listen. I've changed the course of history. Why? Because of two reasons. The summit between Russian President Vladimir Putin and U.S. President Joe Biden, and the FOMC policy meeting statement that came out that day, which altered the structure of markets, very subtly, but very importantly. Those two things together, on that particular date, with those types of needle scratches that were jarring, and in a geopolitical sense, Biden-Putin, and in a market sense, the Fed, those two things signal to me that something fundamental has changed. But in order to be able to explain that properly, I've got to go back and I've got to do a bunch of background work. So let's do that real quick and then I can go on to the other things. So to me, what's happening in the West, U.S., Europe, whatever, centers around the world economic forms push for the Great Reset. Okay, The, the Great Reset isn't a new idea. It's just literally the push to endgame for a European-centered globalist project that began right after the end of World War II, and the ink on the Bretton Woods Agreement wasn't even dry yet. I mean, yes, many of you will be sitting here going, but it goes back much deeper than, than, than 1945. It goes back to the Club of Rome or the Rothschilds or the British Empire, blah, 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 blah. Of course it does. But for these purposes, for these imperatives, it's important, centered around the formation of the European Union as the mechanism by which this long-term plan is going to come to fruition, it starts at the end of World War II. Because Europe and Japan were bombed back to the Stone Age. Russia lost nearly a generation of men in the meat grinder uh, fighting the Eastern Front against Hitler. They were devastated by the war, while the U.S., as Martin Armstrong rightly points out all the time, was left relatively unscathed. Yeah, we lost, we lost a lot of men, and we altered the structure of production, but at the same time, in order to fight the war, but at the same time, capital sniffed out what was happening in Europe early, and it all moved into the United States in 1936, 1937, 38, 39, and because of that, the United States was able to industrialize at a rate at which it could then fight the war. And the industrialization of America, rapid industrialization of America in the late 30s and early 40s, and then into the 50s, is what has driven the quote-unquote American empire since then. So, at the end of World War II, relatively unscathed, the U.S. comes out with the Marshall Plan later on. We have the formation of the post-World -War, War II institutional order. Brighton Woods, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the BIS, Bank of International Settlements, the U.N. We also have the nascent European Union, which starts as a simple coal and customs union, and, and then assiduously, and brick by brick, and built into the monstrosity it is today. So the Great Reset is just the program to ensure the collapse of the old European divisions and bring forth the EU as the dominant, truly dominant political, or only political entity of note. So it's it's important, it's imperative going forward that you understand that the idea of global production, the idea of establishing the needs of these aristocratic elites, uh, having making sure that they have all the necessary uh, requirements they're going to have, and establishing a system of globalism. And this is really what international communism is. It's a process of like, breaking down all national borders and all like different languages and cultures and peoples and putting them all into one system. 
system, like uh, being in the collective, like being in the Borg in Star Trek. So no one is free anymore. Everyone has to be a collective group and to be a part of the state and to be under the control of the authority of the state in an absolute way. So this is absolute autocracy. So they'll send you a little letter in the mail and tell you where you're going to work and what you're going to do. And it just becomes an absolute power dominion over the rights of individual men. When the state, when the pyramid, when the governmental structure tells you what to do. So in order to understand how this is coming about in a global way and how it's diffuse authoritarianism over the the structures itself, the structures of the police, the civil society, of the firemen, of the way that the people think and the city councilmen. That's why you have this kind of struggle session constantly going on over whether to wear a mask, whether not to wear a mask, whether you have white guilt or whether Joe Biden is legitimate. It's, it's, it's an absolute fracturing of the backbone of our ideology, our American religio-cultic construct by which we think that we put our hand over our heart, we say the Pledge of Allegiance, we do these rituals, uh, the Marines are very brave, they salute, they defend America. The, all these constructs and the, the ideological structures by which we understand that we're Americans are being attacked and eroded. So you have to understand that this is the process of demoralization um, that has been started. Uh, and you're seeing it in the children in schools who are becoming tra- transgendered, they're becoming confused, they're becoming disassociated, they're no longer learning anything useful, which is neo-Marxism. And in order to understand this more, let's listen to yet another article and further our understanding of what's really happening out there. We'll listen here to a little piece of a war room session with Jack Posobiec, and he's going to really kind of define the terms for us. Jack, uh, Natalie brought up a good point, and this is why this article in Human Events is so important. Everybody needs not just to read it, you need to share it. There used to be this concept or this construct of elite capture. Right. Um, uh, the, uh, there was a great book came out called Hidden Hand uh, by Clive Hamilton, one of the great investigative reporters in Australia that did the silent invasion about Australia, what, what the Chinese Communist Party did to kind of get in there, take over their political system and how the Aussies had to fight back. Then he brought it out to the United Kingdom and to the West, and particularly the United States, about the influence and the elite capture of the Chinese Communist Party and how, how um, Natalie lays out United Front, it's a major part of the three types of warfare, right? But but your story takes it to the next level, and I think this is how people, this is the, the framework that you need to think about it now, and so many things become evident, right? And that is not elite capture anymore, it's elite merger. What happened after Tiananmen and all those promises that because of our system, our system of free market capitalism and democracy and the values of the GA Christian West, that we were going to change the revolutionary uh, transnational criminal organization of the Chinese Communist Party to our values and our way, a way of managing uh, states and managing institutions. The exact opposite happened. That, in fact, our institutions, and particularly the people in power, saw a model that, that worked for them. And, uh, you know, once every now and again, they say the quiet part out loud. A couple of years ago, Tom Friedman, remember, he wrote that famous article. He says, just for a day, he was, you know, he's in Beijing talking to a cab driver like he always does. He said, just for a day, just for a day, I'd like to have the model of the Chinese Communist Party because we take care of climate change. We do all this. Your piece is so important because we have to start thinking about this differently. Natalie Winter said it last segment. It's not elite capture. It's now elite merger. I want you to walk us through, uh, walk us through your piece, Mr. Jack Pasobin. Steve, now this piece is very important. It's pinned at the top of humanevents.com. Everybody should go read it and share it if you care about your country, if you care about what's going on. And if you're asking yourselves the question of, because I was asked this all the time before I wrote this, they said, Jack, 
a lot of people in the U.S. they say we get it, we get CCP, we get that you're you were a Mandarin guy, you lived there, you worked at the American Chamber of Commerce, etc., whatever, right? There's so many problems here at home. Why are you talking about China all the time? And this is the piece that explains the connection, right? We've finally gone through and found the nefarious roots of how this came to pass. And what it is, it's an axis of the elites, right? The 1% in the West and the CCP in China. This is the culmination, this view of the past 15 years of my life, what I've seen when I was living and working in China in international business, when I was in the military and the intelligence community, looking at how our country interacted with China, primarily through the Obama administration when I was in, and seeing how we would make these sort of uh, in paltry gestures towards, you know, please stop building the islands. We're going to drive a naval vessel past them and really rattle our sabers, but they would continue to build the islands. And we would say, please stop building that aircraft carrier. They would continue to build their aircraft carrier. Please stop restricting trade and everything with human rights, etc., etc. And I realized that as this kept going on, when we would send congressional delegations to Shanghai, to the planning committee they have there, right in downtown Shanghai, the planning committee museum, they would learn that through the power of the CCP model, and that you hear everybody from Thomas Friedman now to Charlie Munger saying this just last week, they say, you know, if we could just have that model and have that power, we could get done everything we want done. We could shut down the banking of the deplorables and the little guy. We could shut down the Abe army and this economic populism. We could shut down all of these things that we don't want so that we in power could then have the decision. What happened was instead of infecting China with these ideals of democracy, of liberalism, of a uh, the Judeo-Christian West and our values, right? This was part and parcel. Uh, this is just sort of part of the conversation as to the handover of Hong Kong, right? They would say, well, if Hong Kong goes back to China just in a sovereign way, 50 years, right? They're going to uh, show this model, this system to the rest of China, and they're going to want to embrace it. They're going to break away from the CCP. And you see a little of that, right? A little of that had happened before in 1989, Tiananmen Square. No, no. The momentum all rolled the other way. The elites were wrong, or perhaps this is what they wanted in the first place. They got a taste of the Chinese power of authoritarianism through the CCP, and they said, you know what? That's what we want to set up now. So you see this in Silicon Valley, you see this in Wall Street, you see it in Washington, D.C., City of London, etc. This is the model they want. And they have now set up the axis of the elites between the 1% in the West and the CCP in China, which if you look at the numbers, about 92 million, that's actually less than 1% of the Chinese population, 1.4 billion. So it's the 1% of the West and the 1% of China, the axis of the elites. Go and read this piece, share this piece. There's. I want to go back to the third week of January of 2017. There were two speeches given, both that got global coverage. Uh, one that was the front page of The Economist, I believe the front page of the, the, um, the Financial Times of London. It was on the 18th of January 2017, given in Davos by President Xi. And he basically made this speech and talked about globalization, talked about the network effect of globalization. He talked about the wonders of globalization. And he basically said the only problem we have out there is these populists. The problem we got out there is these nationalists. They're the guys. They're the bad guys. They're the xenophobes. They're going to break this up. Standing ovation. And uh, Davos man couldn't get enough of it. The party at Davos hailed him as really the leader. A couple of days later, Donald Trump in his inaugural address gave the 
the American carnage speech, which was really a defense of the Westphalian system, really of which the West has been built on, what, for 300 years? This idea of the nation states and nation states working together. So it was Trump versus Xi at the very railhead of this intellectually. And the party at Davos, the 1%, uh, absolutely embraced Xi's vision of globalization, further globalization. Here's the key. All the people there, the, the, the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, all the media experts from around the world, all the media goes to Davos for this for this kind of winter fest, right? You have all the hedge fund guys, all the commercial bankers, all the top deal lawyers. All of their business is one business. That's the information business. They deal in the information business. Every one of those people knew about the Uyghurs. Every one of them knew about the organ harvesting. Every one knew about the suppression and what's happened in Tibet, and the Tibetan Buddhists, and the followers of the Dalai Lama. Everybody knew about the underground house Christians and the underground Catholic Church. They understood about the suppression of the Tiananmen Square democracy movement. They understood the brutal dictatorship of the Chinese Communist Party on their people as they hailed Xi at that, at that speech on 18 uh, January, I believe it was, 2017, two or three days before President Trump's inauguration. They knew all of it, and they didn't care. They don't care. They detest Lao Beijing, old hundred names. They detest the deplorables. You just get in the way, right? All you are is supposed to be units of consumption and production and nothing else. You have no rights. They don't care what you think. And so the party of Davos has fully embraced this. So we kind of bring you these kind of divergent puzzle pieces, and as you work them out, you have to understand that you can't go to Newsweek or Time Magazine or CNN or MSNBC or ABC or any of the supposed, you know, what would be the common sense, what you would intuitively think to flip on a channel and, and watch. When you ever watch movies, they always show the disaster and they click it on the TV and everyone watches the true news, the true facts that are actually happening in real time, but that never really happens in reality. In reality, everything is a distortion and, and, and layered through prisms of filtered uh, agendas. So up there at CNN, Jeff Zuckerberg, whatever, and I guess ultimately, what does he work for? AT&T or Comcast? Uh, I mean, it's really, the corporate structures are dizzying, but ultimately Jeff Zuckerberg has to make a profit and he works for his masters at AT&T or whatever it is. And they have an agenda. They have a way of looking at the world. They have a way of supporting the Palestinian cause against the Israelis. They have a, a way of supporting women's rights to kill their children over and above the baby's rights to live and breathe air and be born. They always are trying to move the agenda for cheap labor. They're moving us all into these Uyghur camps. I think that's where we're all going to go. We're going to all end up in these Uyghur camps where we're going to... That's the, that's the agenda. That's the shape of the future. That's their program that they're presenting. You know, that's their corporate structure. It's like uh, their mission statement is to turn us all into little Uyghur encampments. So ultimately, you, have to, you recognize there that Jack Posobiec is discussing the high contracting powers of Europe, the high financial lords. Luongo was discussing how we had to take a close look at what's happening with um, the, the influence of the British and the Rothschilds. And that brings us back really to where we began in 1776, because the Rothschild uh, banking family at that time was uh, younger and not quite as wealthy, but it was working hard to provide Hessian soldiers to the cause of the prince of, of, of England, the king, who would ultimately seek to control his colonial holdings. 
to recognize that this warfare has not stopped. It's not, it's not, it's continue on through the course of time, through the process of, of, of the way that our diplomacy works, through the way our, our treaties work, through the way the United Nations was established in New York City. Remember, we have this alignment, this, this global great circle alignment that connects uh, Stonehenge and virtually the Druidism of the city of London, that occult power structure there over across the ocean to, to New York City and down into Boston and to Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. This is all part of an alignment, and it's something that's written into the earth, like ley lines. It's something that these, the, the Freemasonic orders really love to establish and their the erecting of, of obelisks, which are ultimately the representation of the cult veneration of Babylon and Egypt. And these Freemasons like to carry that on. And to show that they're establishing their stonework and they're building freely uh, this new empire. And that's really what the foundations are, are, are being built by those who are going to construct this grand new order. And that's why you have to see that this system is coming into place and it's been built over a long period of time. And I, I, we need to do some more of the backstory of this this discussion. So let's go back once again, because in order to, to understand what's happening next, we have to go back and history. I mean, these occultists and these these imperialists who have become global authoritarians and who are building up new industrial barons, I guess, fourth industrial barons, just like they had done in the past, how they built up John Pierpont Morgan, and they built up Rockefeller and, and Schiff and, and other people, other names who suddenly came out and, and had these enormous checkbooks. But they really, these were men uh, like Brown Brothers and Harriman, the Harriman Brothers, and it ties back to Yale University when, when Skull and Bones were, were, was the lottery system for picking the elite and for grooming the young elite knights of the new orders that would come up and uh, and so ultimately these were the ways that they would find the useful tools uh, obviously these the banking powers and in, in, uh, in Europe had to use other instruments and that's where you would have these enormous banking monoliths come out and these oil uh, companies were financed to such an extraordinary length and then that capital would be used to build up and, and finance the Federal Reserve which we're all basically financially indebted to now so these were the games of capitalism and the games of uh, the elite power structure that were used to undermine and to ultimately crystallize their absolute control uh, and the control of the elite. So elite capture uh, is something that the game that they've been playing all along. And um, so we have to take a look at that difficult reality. Like I said, in order to go forward, we have to go back and take a look at how we won our independence in the first place in order to understand how we're losing it today. Hill, he is with Elbridge Gary. He, he literally bunks with him that night. And that morning he wakes up and he tells Gary that he's going to, to Bunker Hill to help defend the hill. And Gary warns him, uh, you know, it could lead to your death. And he said, there's no greater honor than to die for your country in Latin. And he goes to, to Bunker Hill. And, you know, Bunker Hill is, is, is basically, it, it juts out it's um, it's a it's a position that overlooks Boston, and there's high ground there, and the Patriots start to uh, to construct uh, earthworks and place a series of cannon there, which they can then bombard the British in Boston. And the British know that this is a problem, and they immediately move to to wipe out the Americans, including Dr. Warren, who arrives with his musket and says, "Where can I go?" And he basically acts as a private. 
and and, and, and goes into the, the the redoubt that's on the top of of Breed's Hill uh, to to defend the area. And uh, you know, instead of you know commanding everything, he's there to fight. And uh, the British land, and it's they initially try to flank the Americans that are on Bunker Hill or Breed's Hill, I should say. And uh, they run into a series of cannon that are there by Samuel Trevitt, who's a, a, a member of the Marblehead Regiment who has a cannon company. And they fight back very ferociously. It's his cannon, along with uh, John Stark, who's a veteran of the uh, French and Indian War of Rogers Rangers fame. And they fight back and they repel several British thrusts on their positions, which are... You know, they're, they're behind a series of logs and fences. And the British are, are, are stymied. They're stopped. And Lord Howe is there. He's, he's wounded. And uh, his men are faltering in this sweltering heat. And he, leaves, and he orders one more charge. And it's here that they, the Patriots have a real problem. It goes back to the powder that I talked to. They don't have enough uh, to defend themselves. And they're running out. Uh, you know, as the charge takes place, uh, they charge the redoubt. And it's Dr. Warren um, that is in the midst of the melee, uh, fires his last shots along with some of the other men, and uh, he's killed right there. Uh, the, the, the battle is a bloody one. Uh, the British eventually take the ground, but, you know, they sustain enormous losses. They barely take it. You know, had there been the, enough the, power, the, the, the Americans probably would have held that hill. This shocked London. It shocked Parliament. It shocked, it shocked the, the upper reaches. I mean, this is the most powerful empire on, on Earth. First, you have the guerrilla activity that was so brutal coming back from Concord Bridge and from Lexington. Now, the 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 the, uh, the the beginning of the militia and the Continental Army stood their ground against a, a, a continual British charge, which they thought the they thought the Americans would break in a second. This is when they realized they had a big problem, wasn't it, uh, Patrick? They, that these these American colonists were not just tough. There was something about them that they organized themselves, that they could stand up to the onslaught. They would not break and run. They, 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 there was something that got the high command in London that said, hey, we got a big problem on our hands. Yeah, this is about American grit and resilience that's really exemplified here at Bunker Hill, but then it would, it would, it would carry on uh, through the other battles. You know, and then you have... The summer of, of 1776, after the after the Boston are, after the uh, British are forced to leave Boston. Okay, when, but, but hang on, I want I, I want to tee this up correctly. You sign, you negotiate, and sign the Declaration. That we tried to work with the King after Boston to work out a deal. Remember, Dickinson, these guys wanted to reach some rapprochement. It was the fire breathers like John Adams and, and a lot of the guys around the New England area that said, no, this is, this is we're at war with these guys. you got to understand we're at war with them. When the Declaration was then negotiated and signed, right, uh, on, on, uh, on July 4th, right, and put forward on July 4th, the British then sent the largest expeditionary force they had ever sent up to that time anywhere. Is that correct, Patrick? They sent a massive That's expeditionary they, force, Navy, Navy and Army. Say, hey, they can sign all the they can sign all they can make all the declarations they want, but they're going to get British steel, and we're going to put this thing down the old-fashioned way. We're going to crush this rebellion in its cradle. And the cradle is said, we're not going back to Boston. We're going to go to New York. New York, New York is the financial center 
already. You could tell New York was also, uh, you know, m maybe not as patriotic <laughs> at the time as Boston and Philadelphia. But that's why they went. That's exactly why they went to things. And so, walk us through. We got about a minute. Walk us through about this expeditionary force they sent. They sent the largest expeditionary force up to that that point. Most of their navy and most of their army, along with a large contingent of allies, Hessian mercenaries that are from Germany, um, they assemble them on ships and they, they send them over. And George Washington has to defend the indefensible, and that is New York, which is water waterlocked, so it's almost impossible. The British can land anywhere they want, but they, you know, political... The political will in the colonies is such that he has to do it. That's his. That's his orders, and he tries uh, very desperately, and it leads to, um, you know, the opening. The, the real first. The first battle is. Yeah, I tell you what. Once you hang there, we're going to take a short commercial break. But here's the point: on July fourth, we came forth the Declaration of Independence. Within sixty days, the British were landing on Long Island ready to put down the rebellion, and they're going to put it down by force of arms. As we move forward and we begin to just present to you more and more of the facts and more of the more of the, the, the data, and we're trying to isolate the information that's most useful for our purposes, and we're trying to point out to you that the, the colonists and George Washington were well aware that the Hessian mercenaries were German, and they were there just to rape, pillage, and plunder, and to, to kill on the orders of the those who would pay them the most, and that the, the burgeoning Rothschild banking dynasty was working to make sure that they could finance all these Hessian soldiers, and were, were paid probably as each one was killed, and made they made a lot of money providing these mercenaries to the shores of America in order to kill and beat down and to to, uh, to control and subjugate the denizens of the colonies, and they were determined to fight with their lives to take their 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 freedom, and not to be slaves, not to be trodden underfoot by the armed, paid murderers and rapists of of Germany. And really, if you have to understand the, the interconnections there, because they were really looking at the establishment of the Illuminati in 1773 in the University of Ingolstadt, which was in Germany. And Germany was a place where they began to unify all the different courts and principalities and thrones and imperial authorities of Europe, be they the Holy Roman Empire or the kings of France, and like we said, Portugal, and so on. The, the contracting, high co contracting authorities and the sovereigns of Europe were aligned in this Illuminati secret structure that was beginning to control and change the world. And so it was by the providence of God that the colonists were able to escape uh, the clutches of King George III and his handlers. So we have established that the control of the British naval passageways, the sea lanes, and this alignment that they had established in New York City being New York and New England and Boston and ultimately Washington, D.C., this was an alignment that the British hoped to control and will ultimately, apparently, in our back up to our current predicament in 2021, will control very soon. You have to recognize that our problem with the Chinese Communist Party and with their their military that's being designed and engineered and bred and financed to destroy America and the West was set free by London. It was ultimately Peking, uh, now Beijing, was holding 
of the British Empire. So the sun never set on the British Empire, and they controlled all the passageways and the, and the sea lanes uh, all the way to China and India. And ultimately, Gandhi had to ha use nonviolent means to fight the British imperators, imperialists that were there. And ultimately, China was an area that was controlled for a long time. I mean, you have to remember that the the Skull and Bones men who established the, the Skull and Bones Society at Yale, uh, none other than, than William Russell, and uh, his friend Taft and others were uh, coming from great fortunes their their families had made before them in bringing the, the British gunboats over to Peking and forcing open the, the Manchu dynasty and forcing open the Chinese culture to, to the heroin addiction and to massive opium uh, imports. And um, so ultimately, uh, this century of humiliation that China talks about is a century of prostitution and and forced uh, drug dependency um, of smoking the, the, the the opium pipe that the Chinese had and, and their enslavement as they were used to build the railroads and, and be used as cheap labor all across the world. That century of enslavement was something that was uh, instigated by the British. And ultimately the British would let go of the control of Peking and, and to the communists. And now communists have are threatening Taiwan and threatening Hong Kong and threatening the free world and Japan and, and the Sea of Japan and they're threatening now the United States. And you have to recognize how this is all part and parcel of the a strategy, centuries-wide strategy that the aristocracy is playing. Now the power of America is based on its middle class and, and its 80-90% of uh, small business owners and regular workers. And if, if that class and, and structure of people can be liquidated and destroyed, then there's really nothing left. Um, so I think that we have to find ourselves in an existential battle once again here in America. So, how to really tie the big picture? I mean, we're we're, we're trying to you know, make you aware of the the coming together of this universal world empire. And of course, you can see that we're progressing in these really remarkable stages through technological advancement, through the ability to communicate over fiber signals. Uh, we're going into space. We're going to Mars, and we have to check and, and see that. The, the ability for mankind to develop so rapidly is at odds with the, the worldwide famines and the ideological primitive state of our ideological fanaticism around the world. And I think that we are seeing more and more persecutions arising, not to mention the kind of insane position of the, the federal government now, having become totally despondent in uh, the Federal Reserve is is becoming devaluating. I mean, if you try to go in, inside of a convenience store just to buy a Pepsi product, you're going to have to spend $3 because the Federal Reserve note dollar bill isn't worth as much as it was three, three weeks ago. And three weeks from now, the price will go up even further. So it's a lack of production because of all these socialist practices of uh, trying to take care of COVID by printing out trillions of dollars and sending everyone thousands of dollars, federal checks across the country and setting in, uh, people into unemployment by doubling and tripling unemployment payments. So people are just sitting at home, there's no production. And so if you go into look at stores, some things on the shelves are just not there. Starbucks can't keep up, I mean, companies can't keep up and there's a lot of money to be spent, but there's no production and the value is devaluing. So what's on the shelf is, is going up in value. What's in stock 
the prices going up, not because of the taxation of the Biden administration that is also involved, and not because of the devaluation of the actual value of the currency that's also involved in the price going up. But the price is also going up, like Peter Schiff will point out to us, that it's going up because the value of the number of things that are actually in stock are very limited now. So now they're even more valuable. So I would advise you that this is not a commercial adver advertisement, it's just you know advice to get your money into something that's valuable, like silver or gold or platinum. They sell palladium, that's interesting. I don't know how you could sell it again or trade it, but it definitely seems like it would hold its value. You know, buy a, a Ferrari or uh, get a Picasso, but that's, that's the only way that you're gonna be able to weather the collapse of the currency, which is coming hard and fast. And I'm worried, aren't you worried? I'm very worried. I'm worried about my family. I wonder, I mean, they seem like they're doing really well, but do they understand? I mean, I mean, maybe, I, I mean, can we survive? Well, we'll find out. But we're going forward really just to check out how it is with this neo-Templarism of Albert Pike and how they wanted to build this idea of this new world order. And you got to remember that before World War One, the world is very different. It's the Ottoman Empire still. And after World War One, the British Navy having conquered the Ottoman Empire, for one, had the ability to break up the Ottoman Empire the empire of Islamic unity under the Ottoman. So the Ottoman under the Caliphate. So they would rule the Caliphate from Byzantium, well, what used to be Byzantium, and is now Istanbul, what used to be Constantinople before it was Byzantium, and it was Constantinople, and then it was taken by the Muslims and it became Istanbul, and it was the center of the Caliphate or the Ottoman Empire or the Muslim, consolidated Muslim world uh, kingdom there. And uh, it was broken up by the British Navy and it was made into Jordan, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia. So the Arabian Peninsula be Arabian Peninsula be being given to Ibn Prince Saud. And so we gotta recognize that one of the greatest commercial contracts the commercial agreements ever made was signed right after that. So Prince Saud, Ibn Saud, would ultimately be the one to make a deal with the Standard Oil Company. And everyone knows that Rockefeller, who was a Standard Standard Oil mogul, was a Knight of Malta. So this is the Knights of Malta coming in to make the largest commercial contract, commercial petroleum agreement in, in, in history at the time. And they would set, I'm sure they would set Exxon Mobil, BP, and another Shell, another massive petroleum conglomerate would be great at this time in this uh, in the establishment of this new kingdom of Saud who whose family would be given control principal control over the Arabian Peninsula where Mecca and Medina are which are the two holiest sites so once this entire area going up into Turkey and the entire thing was a unified kingdom and now it was broken into these little fiefdoms they were virtually under the control of the British Empire and you gotta remember General Allenby came in to Jerusalem at that time and he entered in uh, on, on his feet he didn't ride in on horseback um, in the way of a conqueror but he came in leading his horse on on uh, on foot and then commanding his men to do so also so the uh, the British cavalry forces or whatever what have you the light infantry men would come in on foot and they would enter into the area of Jerusalem and there was no one there it was completely empty there was a few um, passing migrating Bedouin tribes who are nomadic but there was no buildings no civilization no towns or lights or families or electricity or anything anything in the well in the way of legitimate government so at this time the race to control this area and legitimize it became an urgent prerogative. So right now, Jordan would be established, the Hashemite kingdom, and the prince of Jordan there, Abdullah, he 
has a brother who is very rich, an older brother, who is the head of the Club of Rome and is one of the main globalists. So these different kingdoms that the British and being a puppet nation around the commercial assets of the city of London, who are really, everyone talks about the Rothschilds, but they're really just the clerk, the clerk boys. So are the Morgans and so are the Rockefellers. They're really just, and really the Davos crowd too, ultimately the party of Davos. Ultimately these globalist entities are going to be the commercial debtors of the big monolithic banking agency there in the city of London which is the square mile within London, which is the capital of Britain. And, and it's the same thing like we discussed before many times. It's the same thing with um, Vatican City, which is a 150-acre citadel. It sits in, in Rome, on one of the high the, the hills of Rome there. And you got to remember that, that the hill of Vaticanus was uh, once the place where the Temple of Janus stood, which was one of the high temples, one of the ancient gods, the two-faced god. The temple there was ultimately converted to be supposedly a place of worship that where St. Peter ultimately, you know, so the whole mythology of Romanism stems as a continuation of this Temple of Janus. And the, the word Vaticanus means divining serpent, the hill of the divining serpent. That's what the hill of the Vaticanus hill is where you get the word Vatican. That power structure, that priestcraft that ultimately controls Rome, controls Italy, controls the European Union. You have to remember that they're in alignment there with the banking elite in the city of London. And that's, and that's, those are the different power structures that are influencing the world now. And we have big, big power competitors who have the practical retardation of American sovereignty under Biden and the rise of Chinese autocracy in the East. And so we have to, to look more about how these dynamics are put in play towards the Third World War, which is something that Albert Pike and his cohorts had set into motion for uh, a, a, you know long ago. And so you have to recognize that the idea of creating a universal world religion is something that's central to the work of Freemasonry and to the setting of their, their many memorial stone, many of their founding stones, the foundational stones that they set. And and so there are obelisks that they place at there, the, the, the main the locations that on certain ley lines. So there's a certain amount of geographic measurements that are taking place. So they're, make, they're making these alignments from the stars and finding certain positions on the earth that are aligning with their, their power structure. This is the, what, this, the same kind of thing that you see taking place uh, the ancient builders who are building on the great circle, the equatorial alignments around the earth. That's why you'll see that there's these great cities in Peru and Cairo and Babylon and certain cities that are on these great circle alignments around the earth. And we're gonna get into these discussions more. And so this is what's meant by Freemasonry. This is what we, they're, they're really referring to the ancient builders and to the construct of the Giza pyramids in Egypt and just to these huge uh, pyramids that we see in South America. That's where Graham Hancock comes in and the discussion that we'll be having with my friend uh, Sonenthal, E. Sonenthal, as soon as we uh, locate his uh, secret location. But we need to just, you know, realize there's a greater mystery there and that these ancient builders were, you know, trying to pass on their knowledge. It's something that was lost. So, you know, these, when we have to go into the, the issue of Freemason, we have to discuss the, uh, the Nephilim, we have to discuss the, the pre-deluge, the anti-deluvian civilization of Atlantis. And these things are all occult sciences, things that Francis Bacon were interested in. So in any case, the point is, is that they were well aware that 
that through the course of time that there was an ancient cult illumination and a series of practices and a calendar an occult calendar, a carnival season that would go all the way back through the Greek empire before the time of Alexander the Great. And ultimately Alexander the Great was one of the people that was was central and really kind of destroying and kind of mulling over and kind of subverting and setting back the power of the priestcraft of Babylon and the idolatry that they set up. But in many ways, Alexander the Great sought to emulate it and even sought to reestablish it by setting up his own kingdom there in Babylon. And it was Cyrus before him who ran out the Babylonian priest kings and set them to flight. Ultimately, they had to to set up shop east in Asia in a, in a land that would become known as Pergamos or Pergamum, depending on which you know which translation you read or which which kind of text you're looking at. Pergamos or Pergamum was an area that was controlled by one of Alexander the Great's generals because Alexander the Great would suddenly die at the height of his power and his youth and his conquest, and his four generals, Ptolemy and the rest of them, would split up his kingdom. And those empires would be established just like the Ptolemaic line would be established over Egypt until the time of Julius Caesar. And so the, the continuation of these powers and these these imperial titles and to reign over these different regions as regent and as monarchy would have a necessitating claim to that right those titles so that's what with all this embellishment just like Julius Caesar would take on you know this identity as, as the son of Venus as if he had some kind of divine bloodline in, in his ancestry to try to bolster his claims of divine right to rule that's what it's always been about so as we're going forward you have to understand that this neo Templarism has to do with the fact that the Templars were ultimately destroyed in, a, in, thir- in the 1300s in a most epic and spectacular way. And in many ways, they would go underground and rise again in the order of these nobility. And so these different Freemasonic orders, the different days, secret societies, were a continuation of these guilds and these, these medieval royal bloodlines. So these the Masonic nobility is really the power structure that seeks to control and has in many ways developed the Illuminati and ultimately these Templars came back as the Jesuit order in many ways and the Scottish Rite is a continuation of the Templar legacy and that's where the uh, Albert Pike comes in because Albert Pike knew very well that they sought to re-establish control over Jerusalem and that's what happened in the First World War. General Allenby brought his horse and his men on foot into Jerusalem and then we had the Second World War where there was an annihilation of the Jewish Holocaust and the establishment of a Jewish Jewish state that sets up World War III. So that's what we're getting into. It's a very complex subject. That's something we have to discuss, put out here on the record and to establish on the record because people are not going to see this coming. They're going to be blindsided. So we're working here, working hard to educate everyone so we um, can make sure that we can see this coming and see how that the different power elites and the globalists are getting ready to use, just like they did in Germany, you know, use Germany and the Weimar Republic in the 1930s. They're getting ready to set up 2033 and a great third world war with that let's listen to this fascinating discussion here uh, the jesuits that's why they didn't make it into the book but if you look at all the different groups that i'm talking about in there whether or not it's the knights templar or it is the rosicrucians or it is the royal masonic orders or it is the benedictine cistercian monks and the augustine monks and all of the gnostic orders within that mold within the Catholic order as, as uh, you know, like the Franciscan orders, all of those kinds of monastic orders were 
for the most part, on a 99% rule, Gnostics. And they're the founders of the modern Jesuits. And it's the Royal Masonic aspect that re-implements the Jesuits into the Catholic Church after the fall of the Knights Templars. So, if you but if you understand, and I'll come back to the Knights of Malta, that's another really, really good subject and a large subject, but the Jesuits, they interpret the Bible and, and their version of Gnosticism because they're polytheists. But they interpret the Bible through the seven sacred sciences. And if people don't know what the seven sacred sciences are, that is the knowledge that Cain taught to his son Enoch that he learned from his father Abraham in the Garden of Eden as the Royal Masonic Orders bring forward the history. And Enoch, son of Cain, and there's two Enochs for people who aren't aware of it, Enoch, son of Jared, and Enoch, son of Cain. And I'm talking about Enoch, son of Cain, who's a significant, important constitutive patriarch for secret societies, he took this knowledge and put it into seven different disciplines that we would know as the seven liberal arts today. And this knowledge was developed and then it merged with the knowledge from the fallen angels or from the polytheist culture perspective from the gods that accelerated the knowledge to build all of these great monuments and things that were built before the flood, like the pyramids, which the Masons take credit for getting the knowledge from Enoch, son of Cain, to actually build the pyramids and as a memorial to the flood. And so whether it's Machu Picchu or all of these other great sort of things that were using the sciences to honor the pantheon of gods, they were also trying to lead people away from God with that knowledge. And not to give God of the Bible credit for anything and to, and to degrade God. So they had four different sort of aspects to the goals of the seven sciences, which is the same goal as you look at the degrees and... <laughs> It's interesting that you have degrees in the mystical religions and you have the degrees in the university systems today that are doing all of those things. They're leading people away from God. They are not giving God credit for anything. They're degrading God and dismissing God and taking him out of the equation and they're honoring the pantheon of the gods and even all the buildings that you go to in the universities. Yes honor the, the polytheist gods. And so when you have the royal society being established, which is also called the Invisible College, which will eventually get us back to where we started here, I think. Um, that's formed by the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons in, in about 1660-1662 with the Royal Charter. And they called themselves the last of the sorcerers and the first of the scientists. And this was all of that polytheist Gnostic knowledge, because Gnosticism is a cult of Gnosis, a cult of knowledge, right. and a knowledge uh, to be developed away from the rules of God. And so this is the seven sciences that the Jesuits interpret Scripture through. And so it's this sort of polytheist variant that they're utilizing within the church. And, you understand, and if you understand that the Jesuits were, and this is sort of getting down the line in terms of how they sort of come about, but they are going to have control by about 1570 or so. Uh, well, actually, before 1570, they're going to have control of the teaching and the teaching to the seminary schools in about 15, 
uh, 40 to 45, and about 1570, they're going to get control of the Catholic banking, which is, again, you know, a constitutive part of understanding what's going on in the world and the secret societies. Yes. And so they've been able to influence the doctrines that the priests are being taught, as well as the education that the Jesuits and the Catholic teach, teach it, the Catholic students and so they've had control of that for a very very long time and with understanding that they believe in the seven sacred sciences which created polytheism you start to say okay well that starts to make sense why they would believe in evolution and all of these non sort of scriptural doctrines because they look at Jesus as not a deity status. He's not the word of God. He's not the son of God. He's just an enlightened prophet who may have been avatar along the way, just as Buddha was, uh, but was sent to help humankind to evolve into godhood. So they recognized Jesus as Gnostic Christians, but not in the way that Christians would honor him. And that's why they also don't like Paul. They also consider Paul a heretic because they believe that Paul was raised. Paul is the one who is responsible for raising Jesus to a mortal prophet to a deity, deity status. So that's why it gets complicated when you're talking about, about the Jesuits in terms of they have a veneer of Christians, but underneath something's not quite right. They exalt knowledge. Of course, they're almost like the CIA of the Catholic Church. Look at look at them like intelligence. I, I yeah. see people get that idea of like Jesuit assassins from the Vatican or whatever, like James Bond. Um, yeah. But yeah, least, well, there's there's a, there's a lot to that in their history. Although yeah. the uh, the Knights of Malta and the Knights of Saint John typically are the more influential ones to the startup of uh, the uh, the secret agencies. So. Okay, so, so how the Jesuits begin? Let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about how the Jesuits begin. Yes, okay. Um, they are, they come along um, after the fall of the Knights Templar, just as you get the creation of Freemasonry and Rosicrucians and the Illuminati, the Royal Society, and the Rothschild banking uh, arms as being an offshoot and a consequence of the destruction or the disassembling of this very, very centralized Knights Templar organization. And I talk extensively about the Templars in the book, so that's sort of part of the basis that we're talking about as to how the Jesuits are going to be, be formed. And the, the Templars, um, in the article of their constitution, um, were established in part to recreate Catholicism from within to become the new Babylon, to become the universal religion uh, that would be marrying up to this world government that they had envisioned for, for some time down the road. So in 1307, when they become disemboweled uh, um, and, and, and split up, that really sends a shockwave through the Royal Masonic Orders. And so the Templars were set up as 
a typical secret society inherited from the assassins. That's the organizational structure. And they worked with the assassins uh, for many years, and the assassins held them in very, very high regard uh, while they were in the Middle East. And so this is the organizational structure that they brought back to Europe for secret societies. And basically the assassins were part of the Sufis, and they were like... You would call them Islamic Gnosticism. So they're the polytheists of, of Islam, even though Islam is, is monotheist with Shia and um, Sunni by their definitions. This would be a typical Gnostic type religion or a, a, a knowledge cult religion. Wow. And they mold themselves within Islam. Just as, and, and they're, still, they're still around today. The Aga Khan is the leader of the Sufis, right? So it's a large quite a large organization. And so they mold themselves within Islam just as the Gnostics mold themselves within Catholicism and building the churches um, and having the technology to do that and through the through the monastic orders, which again the monastic orders go back to the Essenes, so they were the first Western monastic order. And an ascetic order, which sort of starts to uh, give you an understanding why monastic orders, and particularly Opus Dei, which is called Christian Masonry, which is formed in the 1900s, um, is so ascetic in its in its uh, relationship because it's really directly associated with the Essenes, taking it right back to the basis of that monastic order, in, in sort of its most purest form, if I could put it that way. And so the Essenes were polytheists. They took their religion back to the religion of Heliopolis and the Therapeutic. And so they were the polytheist form that was part of the three main sections of Judaic uh, religion. So you had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees and you have the Essenes. And it's the Essenes who are in control of the temple at the fall at the time of the Roman diaspora in 70 AD, and that's the treasures the Templars are trying to get at and all that information, because they have that knowledge handed down to them as as descendants of the royal bloodlines of Europe, because they're intermarried into the royal bloodlines of Europe after leaving um, Judea, and they have knowledge of what's there, and that's what they bring back to Europe along with the organization. So... The Templars at the top were royal masons. So, give you a couple of the names that just so that people know that I'm talking about. You've got the most famous ones, which are de Bouillon and de Payan, and of course Anjou. And Anjou is the one who is is the line who is going to inherit the title that they're going to crown themselves with in 1118 in a small priory on the Rock of Zion, or the whole word that the Rock or the Priory of Zion organization comes from, and it's recorded in the Masonic history. But it's Baldwin who is going to receive the King of Jerusalem title because they also have Benjamite bloodlines that are Zion into them, and Benjamin, in the time of Joshua, was awarded Jerusalem. And so their bloodlines that they want to present their Antichrist with is going to be is the one they want to have crowned in Jerusalem as the king of Jerusalem at the abomination. So their dragon messiah. So these are the royal families. And the Anjou, this is the northern Anjou, who lived with the de Bouillon and the Payon in the Lorraine region. And the Anjou from there offshoot 
with branches like the Plantagenet that all the U.S. presidents, for the most part, take their genealogies back to. And that's, of course, King John and King Richard, Plantagenet of England as well. So very, very powerful set of royal masons. These weren't poor knights. These were first sons of kings. And so... In the Knights of St. John or the Knights of Malta, you would have probably the second sons or the third sons, that, because you have to be of that first line in the royal inheritance to be a leader of, of the Knights of St. John or the Knights of Rhodes or the Knights of Malta. They're changed their names from the locations that they moved out of Jerusalem after the fall of the kingdom of heaven, um, as it's uh, called in the movies, um, with uh, Islam taking over Jerusalem in about, uh, uh, um, oh, I think it was 1188 to 1190. So, and that's also what's going to lead to the fall of the uh, of the next Templar, because they lost control and they lost their way, so to speak, as what some of the royal masons were um, concerned with. So with the fall of these Knights Templar, given all of that sort of background that I gave, They've lost their influence in the church. They've lost control of instituting the new Babylon. They've lost control of influencing uh, to the degree that they want the, the teachings in the church, because that's so important. And they don't have control of the banking within the church. And so they're going to want to reestablish this order within uh, the Catholic Church. So in 1317 you get 33 of the most powerful royal masons, mostly in, in the French region, um, that are going to sit down with the Pope. And they have an agreement to reestablish the Knights Templar. But the Pope this time says, but you're not going to have, have control over us like you did the last time. So we're going to put our people in charge. So these 33 invisible ones is what they were called because they didn't want their names publicly known. Um, they reject this offer and they take the organization underground as the Rosicrucians. And so you see the Rosicrucians popping up um, in Scotland where Freemasonry is starting up under the protection of Robert the Bruce who was excommunicated by the Catholic Church and is offering them protection there. Uh, although the money is going to go to Switzerland, and then you've got Portugal and, and Spain, where you've got other things that are going on directly related to what's going to happen with um, the Jesuits a couple hundred years thereafter. But you have the Rosicrucians that are starting up. And so these are the invisible ones, and these are the royal bloodlines. They're the top half of, of the Rosicrucian society today, and the lower half are ones that are rising through the lower ranks, beginning with Freemasonry, going through the Illuminati, and up that sort of hierarchy. And these 33 ones are represented um, above the Rosicrucians, and so it's these 33 that are going to reestablish the Rosicrucians, and then they start to get an opportunity in the 1500s to reassert what they will call the New Templars, in the Catholic Church. So you have a fellow by the name of Ignatius of Loyola who is receiving Mary visions, and Mary visions are very much part of the Catholic Church in so many different ways, just as was part of Joan of Arc and a whole bunch of visions throughout history outside of the Church as well. But his vision is is that he that he is being told and initiated by the vision of Mary to be a soldier within 
the Catholic Church to change the church from within, to have it become the new church that they want it to become, which is uh, uh, the new Babylon. And so that he starts to see these visions in in the 1520s, and by about 1528 to 1530, a fellow by the name of Borgia, who was part of the Borgia Black Nobility Papal Line, um, he is going to start to be a patron of Ignatius of Loyola. And Borgia is a grand master of the Montesa Order in Spain and working with the king of Spain directly because of the royal bloodlines. And the Montessa order was created to inherit all of the assets of the Knights Templar in Spain in 1307. So this organization is still around in, in the mid-1500s, and the Grand Master is a bloodline of the popes and of, of, of royal descent, and he's sponsoring Ignatius of Loyola. And the Spanish throne is very, very powerful at this time and is very influential on the Catholic Church. And they get Ignatius, Ignatius of Loyola's order set up on a charter and set rights in terms of the teaching and everything and its mission in about 1540. By 1570, Ignatius has died and there's been one other uh, member and um, the third leader of this order of the Jesuit order by 1570 is going to be no less than this uh, fellow by the name of, uh, of Borgia. <laughs> and he, he's a royal mason. Now he's got control of the Jesuits and he's got control of all of the teaching of the seminary schools and the teaching within the Catholic Church. And through the king of Spain, they're going to get control by forcing the Roman Church to give them control of the Roman Catholic banking, that they are going to now move to Switzerland along with where the money from the Templars went and to the Knights of St. John or the Knights of Malta um, who were there previous and started the banking back then. So you get the two pillars two pillars of the banking that is being set up in Switzerland. And, of course, the Knights of Malta has the White Cross, and that's one of the reasons why you have that um, as the, uh, the cross on, on, the, on the Swiss flag. Um, no coincidence there. It's it's it's, it's there because the the the, uh, the Knights of Saint John were that powerful in its development at, at that point in time, from the time they moved into right into modern times. And even now, the Rothschilds have moved their banking there, so they've got the banking outside of the church um, consolidated with the old Templar money and with the with the Roman Church. And this is the organization that gets control of the Jesuits from 1570 forward, and their whole mandate changes. So there's three three inspirational founders, or most important founders, to the Jesuits, and that's uh, not only Ignatius of Loyola, but also Peter Faber and Francis um, Xavier. And that Borgia, if people are trying to Google who he is, it's Francis Borgia. So, okay. um, just so you get the right one, because you're going to get Borgia, you're going to get a whole list of Borgia names that are, have to do with, uh, um, you know, Catholic history. So, and uh, so. 
these three have uh, it's kind of an interesting sort of history. So I'll just give you a couple bullet points on uh, who they are. So Faber was he was a noble. Um, so, and the people think that most of the priests in the Catholic Church were average um, humans. No, they're not. They're all from the nobility class on, you know, that are running the church and at the highest levels. And, they, and they'll have very few from, let's say, the poor or the middle class that would be working at the lower ends and being servants and stuff like that. But typically, it was a nobility class. And that's, again, the same sort of organizational structure that they had with the polytheist religions. So, understand that Faber was also a noble and he was educated at the uh, University of Paris at the College of St. Barb. And he received a Master of Arts degree um, because those universities were teaching the seven sacred sciences, right? So and arts is another word for sciences. And at that time, he's going to meet up with uh, Francis Xavier uh, and Ignatius of, of Loyola. And so that's where they meet is when they're being educated uh, at very high level, very noble universities that poor people don't go to or the middle class doesn't go to. They're a very high um, sort of bloodline. And uh, Francis uh, uh, Xavier is, is just as Gaddius of Loyola. He is uh, actually Basque. Both of them are Basque. And if people don't know who the Basques are uh, in their legend, they are a more pure bloodline than the bloodlines that moved out of the Middle East. And the rivalry of the bloodlines of the Basque and uh, the, the royal bloodlines that moved out from the Middle East, not only from, from Judea, but uh, the ones from Persia and, and Babylon and places like that, uh, they had a rivalry, and that started the Basque diaspora, and that was kind of an internal fight. So the Basques believe that they are Homo Atlantis, their words, not mine. Oh my gosh! And that they were the ones who <laughs> that they're the ones who settled civilization after the flood, and that they started uh, post-Diluvian Egyptian uh, civilization, post-Diluvian. Sumerian civilization and the Scythian um, civilization, and then they settled in southwest France and uh, northern Spain. And so these are the people that are starting up this uh, new order, new Gnostic order within the Catholic Church. I really couldn't find a very convenient spot to stop that, and he just is really all over the place, and that's kind of what you're seeing happen on this podcast. We have to just leap through thousands and thousands of years of history to try to kind of match up the integral constituent components that are important and to, and to make everything make sense. And it would really drive it home. Um, you have to look at these royal Masonic bloodlines. I mean, even uh, Pope Francis, his name is Mario Bergoglio, and he has a, a royal family seal. You can look up his crescent, his ancient family crescent, and uh, his peerage and lineage. And he, uh, if you look at Bergoglio, it's it's another extension, another uh, branch in the tree of the Borgia uh, a bloodline, and of course, Francis, uh, Pope Francis, has long been a Jesuit who served in a powerful position in Argentina for many decades. So I, we we look at him and we wonder how much he knew about the flight 
of all those high-level Nazi SS officers and the, the high command of the, the Führers, uh, Death Head Brigades, and all the Nazi officials who fled Germany after doing the brutal things that they did and hid in Argentina, certainly the Catholic Church helped them get there with passports through another means, and uh, also they were able to make sure that the history of those Nazi war criminals living in Argentina would never be known, never be told. So, of course, you know, Jesuit like Bergoglio, having a Borgia family line, and uh, being so instrumental there in Argentina would be rewarded with the papacy. And, uh, of course, the Jesuits have long sought to control the papacy and to have it as one of their instrumentalities ever since the Pope, uh, Pope Clement Thirteenth and Pope Clement Fourteenth tried to destroy and to dissolve forever the Jesuit order when the papacy and the Jesuits were at war. And, uh, of course, that was in 1772 and 1773. And that, that conflict between the Jesuits, having been extinguished by a papal bull, continued until approximately 1813 is approximately 100 years before the creation of the Federal Reserve System in 1913, which would lead to the Roaring Twenties and to 1929 when we had the Great Crash. Joseph P. Kennedy, the super rich kind of Rockefeller yeah, individual. The most, the richest ones are, are not well known, like Morgan and Rockefeller and some of these these famous names we see. They're the mid-level, wealthy elitists who don't really have the anonymity seems to accompany some of these other really ultra-powerful um, monarchists and ultra-montane knights who, who hold to the old system of principality and prince and, 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 and submission to your noble lord, your king, your master, your liege lord, you kiss the ring. That's what the Godfather was all about. That's what, what you were seeing evinced was the structure of their authority, um, which, uh, you know, the Don was the prince and, you know, they were, they were royal nobility. They were royal Masonic orders that were operating in the civil society within America, and they had their own rules. So we're really kind of getting into the, the depth of this here, and I want to get back on track because we need to focus on Albert Pike. So beggars can't be choosers when we're looking for the kind of information that we want to talk about and we want to hear others discuss and the kind of historical references we're trying to find in order to put together the different articles of this particular podcast thesis here that we're working on. And in order to get back to the issue with Albert Pike, we have to arrive at the United Nations. And so once again, we're, we're just peeling through uh, chapters and chapters of history and arriving at a point where Rockefeller is going to own huge segments of Manhattan uh, in a skyline. That property there in real estate in, 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 in New York City and ultimately he's building enormous buildings and he's going to give a huge parcel to this quasi uh, sovereign independent international zone and uh, set up this whole uh, intranational system of world government called the United Nations. In order to get into the United Nations, we have to recognize uh, the hundred years of different kind of ideas, different kind of ideological and occult Gnostic doctrines. And, and like we said, a lot of these ideas are not something that I necessarily believe, believe in or maintain as my own personal truth. It's just these are the things that, that people held sacred. And we have to get into this idea of Lucifer and the Luciferian tradition that Albert Pike was so famous for bringing forward. And that will take us to the issue of theosophy 
and Helena Blavatsky and Alice Bailey and some other kind of arcane subject matters you might know nothing about, but we really need to kind of get into. So I need to turn to one of our favorite resources, that's geopolitics and empire, and we're going to listen to their, their really uncensored and unrestricted conversation, and that's when he kind of picks up these different ideas, and we're going to run with them. They did the same thing with the Freemasons and, and so on down the line, and they have ability to hijack these different groups. They do very, they're very clandestine and very cleverly, and they come in acting like they're your friends, and they're, they're deceivers, deceivers, and they deceit and they lie. And they share and they, and they indoctrinate their children into believing what they they believe that hey we're very special we worship this over here and they don't even tell them who they're worshiping and so they lie to their own even children until they figure it out when they get older uh, by that time they're so indoctrinated into this that they're they're part of the problem again and they've been doing that toward different societies they take over the media they take over the the, the net they take over the uh, the governments they they black blackmail and they do whatever they can do murder they do with it presidents they do whatever they need to do to get in and they do this on a generational level you're talking about you know uh, this this original uh babylonian lifestyle of satanism being carried to this day but with a modern modern rank modern code on put on it and so now we're here seeing the end results and this is what we got what we got is hollywood is um sex trafficking and the pedophilia is this are it's, it's it's infested you got the you got the george soros is 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 infested he has he has he uses these proxy groups to do be the bad guy like antiva and so on the line you got you know the podesta brothers who are, who are blatant satanists right out there you got you got the the presidents is uh, republican and democrat alike you know um so they infiltrate over a period of time and what they do is they create this level of chaos and their goal is to bring in this one world, they call it full spectrum dominance. And how they they decided to do was to do the get the use what they I guess the tone of the door was is to use tyranny, healthcare tyranny as their foot in the door. They that because they don't care about your health. If they cared about your health, the companies that they own, like Monsanto and many others, they wouldn't be poisoning you for the last. 30, 40 years. They wouldn't be putting sodium fluoride in your water for the last 70 years. They wouldn't be doing all these horrific things collectively and allowing, and I'm not saying every one of them is conscious of doing it. A lot of them were just brought out. They don't even realize they're doing it, but for the inside of that spider web uh, where the real real Satanists are, most people don't know what their goal is, but I'm giving you just a, my perspective of what I've seen and put together interviewing just people that you know as well. I'm probably telling you stuff that you already heard. And, and, and as these people come together, they take over and they keep their rituals. They do their rituals, as David Wilcox told me, that they do the rituals usually twice a week on Wednesday nights, 3 o'clock in the morning, they go out and they do their sacrifices, whether it's little children, uh, whether that's animals, whether that's whatever it is. And they do the rituals to keep their, their momentum going with this new world order. And so they had to first, what they do to each country they go into is they first, they demoralize de, 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 uh, it. And you demoralize it by what they put out in Hollywood. You keep raising the bar higher and higher. Now you got, you know, little 12-year-old uh, transvestites uh, and and transgender kids running around at strip clubs. You know, I mean, who would ever who would have ever allowed that to happen 10 years ago or five years ago? It wouldn't happen. But you do that over time. You demoralize a country and you get your soldiers where they're not fighting good wars anymore. They're fighting for other countries and uh, for other other international purposes and then then after that you destabilize the country you start making you're making cdc 
if this was looking out for your best interest, you make them a, a, a profit-making, patent-oriented, vaccine-loving uh, private organization. So, And you tell them that they're looking out for your best interest, so listen to them, where they're making now billions, if not trillions in time, on vaccines that are unnecessary and that are actually dangerous uh, um, when you get into it. You got, and so you destabilize different FDA, destabilize the different agencies, you corrupt all your politicians, you, you on a local level, you get the Agenda 21 in there, which is the New World Order agenda, and you get that in place in the different cities, in the different towns, and then you know, you know, your third level is you create this crisis, you create a crisis, and we just experienced a crisis, the pandemic crisis in this last year and a half, and that crisis was the COVID-19. And then... Finally, the fourth step to really bring the new world order in, and which we're almost there, we're going to be getting there soon if we don't step up, is you bring the new normal. You already hear about the new normal, right? And uh, the new normal is not what we think by wearing masks, not wearing masks, or getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated. That's just a stepping stone into the new normal. That has That's not the new normal. The new normal is what they're called this worldwide, worldwide, world spectrum dominance plan. And that's going to be the surveillance which are already got in place. The five G's already in place. Here in Georgia, they they get sold our count. They governors gave all the right of ways to our, our everybody's home in Georgia in front of their home houses, give them away to the communication tech companies privately. Now they own them, and your county can't do anything about it. So they can put their five G mass tech mass uh, masks up there in towers, and that's going to be a direct energy weapon at your house now, uh, and that will be part of the Internet of Things. So their goal is now to bring us into this new. They call it the Great Reset, what they're in the middle doing right now. They're resetting us to uh, be basically a cyborg, transhumanism, cyborg energies, uh, uh, human hand, and artificial intelligence with all this nanotechnology. They're, they're uploading us in us all the time. And as well as a depopulation plan to get rid of the majority of the people that are here on Earth because there are too many of us controllable. That's the end game. And they're now in going into the new normal. And what we have to expect over this next year is more false flags. Uh, they, they're using the Delta variant more likely or some other variant coming out to just to justify the next lockdown, which could be as soon as next couple of months. We don't know here in the States. They're already doing it in many other countries. Australia, you know, all these other countries now are locking down, uh, getting ready for the new variant. And by the way, as we learned on one of our shows, uh, I think it was called the Delta variant. That, that these variants burn down. They never burn up. So how can more people be kill, being killed by a Delta variant when they're supposed to be burning down? It's all lies. People are dying now from the Trojan horse vaccines that they are voluntarily injecting into their body because no one ever told them what's in it. And it's so obvious that no one ever told them because it's not even in the pamphlets they give you when when you're supposed to ask for it by the doctors. Doctors go along with too. They're just as clueless as the rest. And so as we build these payloads of nanotechnology in our body, we become more disconnected uh, from being a human. And it affects our brains. And if you're able to look at some of these things under a microscope, it's horrific. Horrific to see how uh, this nanotechnology that they're injecting into them, if they if people knew that, they would never even think about doing it. They would arrest these people, string them up right there out there in the court, and it would be over with. But because it's all being done clandestine and lies, and the mainstream media now is controlled by these people we talked about, um, and they control it through fear, murder, and bribery, and uh, blackmail. So, uh, and it's been in place for, they've been, not just in this last year, this, this process has been in place for a long time. They co-opted the CIA, basically from the get-go. They've been working for them in the beginning. Uh, they have co-opted the different countries, the main major countries. 
And as you see, the countries that don't go along with it, you've seen them right now in the last last year, three of the three of these poor um, African and South American countries, um, they kill them. They kill the presidents. The Haiti's president killed. And watch, prior to the, him being killed, they were all against the vaccines. You know, I'm not even keeping up with it. I can guarantee you the next president there is going to be pushing the vaccines. Same thing with, uh, um, I think it was Madagascar or Zimbabwe or somewhere around there. Tanzania. Uh, yeah, they, uh, you know, they prior they're against it. Now they're for it. Go figure. It's all CIA and their goal for this world's spectrum dominance. And it is uh, is evil people. These are evil Satanist people, such as the Rothschilds and the rest of them. And they have, you know, uh, yeah, people knew you go look, look across Schwab. He's a he's a relative. Of, he's a he's a son of a Rothschilds or Marianne, I believe her name Rothschild. So they're all not a big group of them, but they're so powerful because they control the money. And the money controls the people's decisions. I mean, I have family members now who know what I'm talking about, who believe what I'm talking about, but are still going to get the vaccine because now their job's in jeopardy. I mean, come on, man. I mean, where is where is your sense of of, of faith? Where's your sense of a soul understanding that, you, you know, you know, there is no death. I mean, I wish people would understand that there's no death. You don't die. You're like Obi-Wan Kenobi. You just become greater in a different form. And then you come back and you do whatever you want. you got to have faith in that. We can't be scared of dying anymore, more than ever before. We're going to have to find the courage. And uh, and I and one thing about courage, real quick here, is is that I learned to learn understand from some friends. I think it was uh, Thomas Campbell told me his definition of courage. I thought it was brilliant. Is that it's being scared, scared to death, having courage, but doing it anyway. So if we can be scared while we're doing it, it doesn't matter. But just do it. Just go out and do it. And don't worry about how you perceive. Don't worry if they throw the labels of anti-Semitism on you, or um, a uh, racist added racist racism at you, or that you're anti, um, you know, you're anti-fascist, whatever, whatever, or fascist, whatever, whatever it is. You know, don't worry about that because you've got to follow your truth. And if your truth leads you down that road, and you see what's happening, then that's all that matters. Because people will watch you. People are looking at you right now. They're looking at both of us right now. And they're like, wow, they're saying this. You know what? They can say this. Well, maybe I can too. And that's what you need. You need to give people courage by sharing that light. And it is light. It's truth. And truth is light. And light is love. And so truth is love. And with all that being said, that comes down to you got to either love or you stay in fear and hate. And right now, they got the majority of the people. I'll give them credit. They got these seven teams, got the majority of the people in hate. They got them in fear and hate right now. And I, and I, hate it. <laughs> they got them in fear and hate, but the only way out of that is through love. And that's what, you know, why we started United United Detentions uh, Foundation and the UI Media Network, which our tagline is raising the frequency. We got to raise the frequency of love to be able to eliminate that level of hate. And I think that's kind of hopefully what we're trying to do each day as we go forward with our with our network and our uh, our shows. Yeah, and I, I'd agree that your your thoughts on death. My view is that we're all dead, anyways. You know, we're we're all yeah. <laughs> we're all dead, anyways. You, if you think about it, you, you're actually dead. We're all going to die. It could be in a few years, a few decades, but you're already dead. So that's going to happen. You can't avoid it. So you might as well stand up. You know, I, I, we think of all those images. You know, Braveheart and all those movies. And I cannot not tell the truth because I couldn't live with myself. I couldn't look in the mirror every day. So I have to tell the truth regardless of the consequences. And, you know, speaking of the Delta variants, I like to joke, uh, half jokingly say, but I, I believe it, you know, I'm waiting for the Alpha and Omega uh, variant, you know, because G Jesus says I am the Alpha and the Omega and that he will return 
uh, one day. So I'm waiting for those um, variants. And, and as well, you mentioned the esoteric and the spiritual dimension. And I think a lot of people who, who follow these things geopolitically and economically, what, what's happening, if you're not tuned into the esoteric or spiritual nature of things, I think you miss out uh, on a lot of understanding of what's really happening. Uh, I, I have here in a box, I should have taken, out, taken it out, I have a, a box here with just some files and papers, and I was in, studying diplomacy in Geneva in 2008 and nine. And I attended uh, one of the meetings of the Lucifer Publishing Company, Lucifer's Trust. They have three uh, offices in New York, London, and Geneva. And I said, hey, you know, people, I talk about this stuff, people think I'm crazy. I'm going to go to one of their meetings, you know, get some of their handouts and prove, you know, this is not some conspiracy theory. And I have here the documents. It's 2009, and it was a meeting about their esoteric stuff. And it actually says on the paper, Lucifer is like the Prometheus who's bringing fire to mankind, and they they are theosophists. You know, Alice Bailey founded uh, the Lucifer Publishing Company in 1922. They changed the name to Lucifer's Trust, and they're a formal member of the United Nations. And they actually believe that Lucifer is the Messiah, that he is the Maitreya, the Mahdi, the, the Christ, and they're preparing for his return. I subscribe to their newsletters. And there's a lot of influ influential people who support, you know, the UN, uh, the Lutz's trust, and as you you laid it out, this is documented. It's not some crazy stuff. Uh, and so you mentioned uh, the new normal, and I, that was one of my questions. You know how people are, which I think is basically the social credit system that we see in China. You know, people are now being deplatformed in real life. Uh, you know, there are upstanding citizens. This is happening in U.S. and other countries, Europe. Uh, they're having bank accounts terminated uh, recently to two folks, Laura Witzke, I think, I forget her name. She had a Wells Fargo account terminated, uh, PayPal accounts terminated, other financial services, Airbnb, Uber. Wow being put on no-fly lists now, people being put on no-fly lists in the U.S., uh, and people's reputations being attacked through wokeism and, and cancel culture. Yes, yes. You know, at, at some point, you know, trying to live a normal life will become insanely difficult, and you know, this, is, this is the cashless society, the social credit system. It's here now. You can see that here at Looking Glass Forum, we're dedicated to bringing you the next level information, next level research, next level debate, and we're taking this whole thing to the next step. And we're not waiting for anyone else to give us permission or for someone to come along and sanction our work here. We're just going to go ahead and do what it takes to pull the strings on this entire thing now and, and to, to shine the, the light on in these dark places. And it's crucial for you to realize that 5 and, and 10 and 15 years ago, this entire uh, difficult reality that we're discussing wasn't possible. And the, the end time, the book of Revelation, the last days, the mark of the beast stuff, it wasn't possible. But now we're facing it. We're facing it suddenly. And just like the Lord said, the end comes like a flood. And the flood uh, the flood part always happens at the end because it takes a long time for the, the ground to get saturated and for the rivers to fill up and for the, the water table to be completely full. But by the time that happens, it doesn't take very much more water after that to flood everything. And it's very quick. So that last interview with Geopolitics and Empire with Tim Ray was very fascinating listening to their discussion and how they view the different issues. And they, like I said, the, the whole panoply of the subject matter is really just astronomical because we're talking about economics, world history, we're talking about different facets of religion, different geopolitical issues, different kind of 
diplomatic issues and it, all these different kind of various subject matter come into play in order to really make sense out of this whole thing. And it's the interplay between the nations. And it's really the, this fascinating discussion that he gets into when he discusses Lucifer's trust because that's something that really no one really discusses. And it's really the, the Lucifer Trust or the Lucifer uh, Publishing Foundation was at the heart of the United Nations. In fact, they used to be kind of like a kooky, weird seance club. And with Alice Bailey and Helena Blavatsky, who were the founding um, women who started... A theosophy, and you have to recognize that the, um, the the female side of Freemasonry, they they ultimately these esoteric clubs like to divide us by sexes. So you have the fraternities, and which are male only, and then you're going to have sororities, which are are woman only clubs, and like the Order of the Eastern Stars, female Freemasonry, secret societies with only women, and they they do the, the different rituals that they do, and it reminds me of how it was back. If you go back into the Old Testament and look at um, the time of twelve tribes of Israel and the time of the prophets, and you have to remember that the the priests of Baal and the priestesses of Ashtaroth were the cult system of Babylon at the time, and they were represented by the colors black and white, and by the emblems of the sun and the moon, and we get this idea of black and white magic, and the they're, they're two priestcrafts were separated by gender and so that the priests of Baal were represented by wearing black and they were all men on one side and then the priestess of Ashroth, the, the worshippers of the goddess were represented by white and they were on the other side and they were separated and it's no different today when you have these different Freemasonry and you did different esoteric fraternities and then you're going to have the esoteric sororities and they're, they're separated and they're separated along the magical lines and the esoteric sorcery that they've always been that's been established at their basis the entire time they didn't invent their their rituals they were passed down to them over many centuries and so ultimately we'll get back into the subject of Albert Pike, who is a kind of a, a small player. He was the inventor of the Palladian Rite and the Ku Klux Klan, and he was a general in the Confederacy. He fought uh, for the South, and ultimately he has a huge bronze statue in Washington, D.C. today because he represents the power of the city of London and the power of uh, the money powers and the bankers, and he represents the will of the Jesuit order as they sought to find a way to control this nation and ultimately to bring it down. So with that, we're going to get back to you with part three.